Oh, hello. Fancy seeing you here on a Monday morning, but glad you could join us. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, we will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their businesses to success in an ever-competitive business climate. So pour yourself a hot cup and enjoy the show. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. I have a very special guest today for everybody, and her name is Marilyn Ackerman. She is an outstanding real estate agent, entrepreneur, and she's also my beautiful wife. She's a Colorado real estate agent who has achieved a ranking in the top 10% of the 16,000 real estate agents in the Homestart Realty Group nationwide for a combination of sales, dollar volume, and number of sales in 2019. Before being recruited to HomeSmart, she had been in the top 25% of Coldwell Banker agents in 2017. She has the Certified Negotiations Expert designation under her belt. She has also been a real estate agent since 2011. She also owns and manages her own portfolio of rental properties. And today, she's going to talk with me about what excites her in the real estate industry, where the opportunities are for people to invest, what she learned working with architects as builders, that would be Alex and I at F9 Productions, and Smart Investing. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lance. So let's start off with, uh, first, as we get started, uh, explain how you a real estate agent with HomeCert Realty and also an entrepreneur? Well, I'm an entrepreneur because I'm the one who organizes, manages, and assumes the risks of my real estate business. I find 100% of my clients through my own efforts, which I think a lot of people don't realize that real estate agents find their own clients. Right. How do they think they get them? How, how, how does a lay person think you guys get your clients? They think that HomeSmart Realty Group people... Uh, uh, HomeSmart Realty Group would just send them to me. Right, like 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 a baby, right? Like a, a stork picks <laughs> it up, brings it to your doorstep. Every morning, you guys can't believe, you wouldn't believe it. We have just people just on our doorstep. That would be lovely. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> but you know what I see her doing? I see her doing, tonight, like tonight, what did you do? Tonight, I came home from, from uh, to eat supper, mm-hmm. and you had said, uh, you did what, 18 stop stop and goes what are they called Popeyes Popeyes a pop buy yeah mm-hmm. so that's where I, I'm dropping off a little gift it's it's near Christmas so I'm dropping off some Christmas cookies and with my business card and a cute card on it asking for referrals and that's so I can say hi to people yeah so that's one of the many things she does and another thing that I that I would like to adopt into my own practice and I'm, I'm trying to encourage Alex to do the same thing is her database I think it's I think it's so overlooked by a lot of architects, uh, other business people, anybody who's out there selling some kind of service, is her extraordinary database and how you stay on top of that. Talk to us about what this database that you've built and how you how you facilitate sales through that. The database. I think I'm up to maybe 800 people in my database, which is good considering that I know all of those people, and at one time or another, those people. Well, probably 75% of them have sort of raised their hand and said, I'm thinking about buying a house sometime, anytime. And so that's when I put them in my database. And the rest, the rest, the other 25% are probably just friends, colleagues, just people I want to keep in touch with um, for business and also personal, some personal too, but mostly business. I don't have a lot of family members in there. So that's the database. And, and I work on that and I try to add names to it uh, every week. Names, numbers, emails, addresses, and addresses. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's seriously great. Like I'm still ashamed that I don't have this database together on my side of the things. Um, so anyway, bravo, bravo to you for that. Um, tell, I also Thank know you. your mother, obviously, right? Because we're married, but, uh, tell us, tell me, and this, is what brings me to the next question is, uh, I know your mother was a, um, she was an entrepreneur herself, right? She had, I think like th- over 30 rentals or something like that in Detroit. That's it was right. like an insane amount of rentals. And now her mother's very well off. She's just hanging out down in South America doing her thing. We rarely see her, but she's crushing it. Just, just, just enjoying <laughs> her life. So I feel like your mom. Kay, you know, she influenced you at a certain level to be an entrepreneur. Um, but you tell us what tell tell us what what influenced you to be an entrepreneur and, and go after these sales and and try to build wealth like you do. Right, I knew since I was a kid uh, through my mom that I wanted to own real estate as a path to wealth and freedom. Truly, when I was in middle school, my mom had acquired those thirty rental homes in the Detroit area, and the average price of those homes was two thousand dollars each. So she had bought them in groups of about six to 15 homes from other investors that she knew. And she had a career with the state of Michigan doing a a computer job, information systems. And so she had saved the money from that to buy the first group. And then those rental homes would pay themselves off through the rent that she would receive. And then she could buy more homes. So that's how she leapfrogged into doing that. And she would tell me directly that she made more money owning the rentals than through her job, which was a good professional job. She really stressed to me and showed me just the importance of owning assets. So I've always looked at my work as a means to acquire income producing assets. Yeah. And I I love real estate is everybody's heard this a million times if they listen to this podcast, like it's it's the asset you know you can have you can have gold you can have uh stocks you can have you can even have you know multiple companies and everything but there i mean there's just nothing like at least mortgaging and and, and owning some kind of real estate i think the earlier the better get in get in while you can um which later on i'm going to ask you because this is i was even telling the guys at work today as soon as you can get in you need to just get into a house like there's there is no bad time to buy, in my opinion, unless you have don't have a job, right? Then you can't buy. So, like, obviously, that's a bad time to buy. Um, yeah. So, what is your current real estate portfolio, and and what kind of goals do you have with it? Well, I have the two rental houses, three rental townhomes, and one triplex. They're all in Colorado. So, my goal is to add one new property per year, and I've done that the last three years. And then, when when my kids are 18 and which will be in about three years for one of them two and a half years I'm I want to buy a house with them every year because then I can buy an owner-occupied home with my child (laughs) (laughs) and they don't mind moving a lot so that's that's my version of house hacking when house hacking I love house hacking because people say do that and and that's what I did uh, um, uh, earlier when the the kids were real little was house hacking was just keep owner owner occupying the homes that I was buying. So now I have an opportunity to do that again. And I think a lot of people overlook that opportunity when, when their, uh, their kids are of a, a certain age where they're adults and they can do that. Yeah. And the part I love about that, uh, I plan on doing the same thing. I think following your lead in real estate is, is, is something to attain to for sure. You, you've proven it to me. Like, you know what you're doing. Um, but the one thing I really love about that is like, okay, the kids go to college and then you buy a house near the college. Great. Now you guys maintain it. You know, you guys are in charge of at least watching over. So you sort of have like these little satellite 
operations going on where you at least have this might not be your eyes on the ground but it's it's somebody of you know importance in your life that's in that you can trust that's eyes on the ground oh that's really important having somebody you trust and if you don't have them then build the relationship with someone who has the eyes on the ground that you can trust mm-hmm. yeah it's very important definitely um but your primary work uh beyond being a, just an investor and having your portfolio is you working as a real realtor and i see that every day uh we have you everybody knows who's listening to this that she's she's been our realtor for our development um tell us about that tell us about your your day-to-day and and how you kind of tackle that well as far as being a real estate agent every day I have a lot of enthusiasm for real estate and I hope it's contagious for my clients. I, I just really feel good about helping people acquire their own assets. And some of my favorite clients just make great examples because th- there are some people who have bought a regular house in our area. They've made the payments for 20 years, maybe a little longer. They've Maybe they've paid it off typically. And what, what they end up with is dream money. Where Dream money. Especially when that, it's appreciated the way it has in Colorado. When it's appreciated the way it has. Because their houses can be worth, you know, their regular house that they bought for, you know, $80,000 and, you know, 25 years ago. It might be worth, you know, $400,000 now. And, and that's enough to achieve some lifelong dreams for a lot of people to have that kind of money. Because what, what I notice a lot of people are doing here is moving to less expensive areas of the country. They're selling their $400,000 house and they might buy one that's much less and nicer mm-hmm. in another Bigger. area. And then they have a lot of cash left over. And I think it's so fun to see people's dreams come true like this. I have, I've had some clients that sold their house here it was about $550,000 house and it was it would be a fixer upper yeah. in this area. And then they went to the country of Panama and bought a $110,000 country estate. An estate? Yeah, acreage, 90 acres. That's in, okay, that's incredible. <laughs> it is incredible. <laughs> and they're living their dreams, you know, they're they're yeah. like 60 years old, they're definitely not working, but you don't realize how much this money can catapult you into your dreams and it's easier than saving. It's easier than saving. It doesn't, I, 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 the thing I, you know, it's, it's so obvious to say to anybody who's listening, who is a, uh, savvy at all, right. And any kind of business level, right. But like, you're just making, you're just, you're just doing your day to day stuff. You're making the mortgage payment. But if you just, if you're sticking with that, if you're buying in a decent area, right at the mm-hmm. end of the day, it's going to come back tenfold. It, I mean, literally probably more than tenfold with the debt, that example you just gave us a 550,000. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Plus, they can go to Panama and sing Panama. Uh, <laughs> what about <laughs> what do you what do you what about people that are just starting out with their first home? Um, what's that experience like? Because you sell to all different kinds of people: people that buy their first home, people that buy businesses, all kinds of stuff. I do. I work with buyers and sellers, and I love just showing people who are thinking about buying their first home that they can use that home to achieve their future dreams. And I love just going over the. It, just the the math with them first saying, okay, if you bought this average three-bedroom, two-bath home in our market, uh, you could buy this for $450,000 today. If it only appreciates 4% per year, it will be worth $900,000 in 18 years. Then I asked them, I mean, do you think you could have it paid off in 18 years? Yeah, maybe we could. 
And what could you do with $900,000 in 18 years? I mean, could that be enough for you to have some real dream money? Because it's not really about the houses. It's about acquiring the wealth for whatever your dream is. And I want to get them excited. I want to get them into a house and, and in their best interest, buy another one. Buy a, you know, move from that one to another one. Maybe they can house hack. Because if, if you're happy to have one, you'd be even happier to have two in 20 years. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Multiply when you can. Whenever you can multiply, right? I mean, that's a lot of people think um, there's this giant secret, I think, to just any kind of business success. But I, I even tell, I tell our children all the time, all it is is multiplication. Yes, you need to learn algebra. Yes, you need to learn maybe trigonometry, calculus when you get to college. But at the end of the day, if you just, if you just understand how multiplication works and you can time things correctly... That's that's where the real wealth hack comes into play. Um, so we just got a, we just finished. We're rounding out the year. It's December sixteenth as we record this podcast, twenty nineteen, and we both we both just had uh, giant years in terms of uh, things we were doing. And but um, but your latest sales were totally unique because you you'd never you'd never worked with a builder in the way you worked with us before. So tell us about your latest sales. What was it like? working with us with this very unique development. Yes, for your listeners who don't know, Lance and Al just built eight very modern and uh, probably going to be award-winning townhomes uh, in Longmont, and they they also built their office. So I listed and sold the eight units. Actually, we sold seven of the eight, and I learned a lot. So... The first thing is is something easy. I mean, I learned that because it was such like this chic looking development with rooftop decks and the modern exterior, it was so graphic in the pictures and the black and white um, paint on the exterior and block blocks of paint. I mean, everybody wanted to, you know, come find out about this and walk through it as they were being built. So I learned I need to screen people carefully just to filter out, I mean, who was looking versus who could buy. Right, because, and just to give a little background about that, we were basically trying, she likes to say this often as, she, she was selling air because there was nothing vertical yet. I said I was selling invisible townhomes. Yeah, invisible yeah. townhomes. <laughs> yeah. We had these, we had these insane walkthroughs um shout out to enscape the software that we use to, to make that and uh these these really incredible renderings and so it was tricky because i think uh the screening like screening process as she said is you get a lot of i mean did you think you've had more tire kickers than usual at that development say than just a standard house listing yeah because it was so different for our area and so cool looking Absolutely. There's not a lot of rooftop decks in Longmont and people want to know what this is about, especially as soon as they were constructed enough for walkthroughs. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a good way to screen them for me was, you know, I have, I have a lot of questions I can ask. I mean, and one is if you saw something that you like today, would you be ready to make an offer? Just, just really having to ask a lot of questions like that, because each time I each time I, sold, I showed these, it was an hour of my time to walk through and point out where everything was because they weren't, they weren't in, in built yet completely. So I had to, so the showings were extensive mm-hmm. when I would do the showings. Yeah, I know. We all got exhausted on that project. Um, what did you learn about working with architects? Well, lurking, what I learned about working with architects 
and how your process works is that I think that you, you were in the creative phase of this project for a long time. As in, as in what I wanted to do was I wanted to really look at these from a critical standpoint to price them because that was my, my first goal. I want to get the right price on these. And so when I would, when I would want to do that with you, it was, it was just you wanted to price them at exactly what the, the appraisal said or what other townhomes were priced at in different areas of town. And in our town... The north end and the south end have different prices. The, the north end, a lot of times, is about 15% less than the south end. So we were in the north end, and, and everything that was being built was in the south end besides your, your development. So it was hard, I felt, to not step on your toes when wanting to talk about the, the realistic price for these. That was very challenging. And also, I'm used to this because in a lot of ways, you and Al were typical sellers who think our thing is is the best the ever. Knees. Our house is the best yep. ever. Everything about ours is is made of platinum, and everyone else is just wood. I mean, like that's how people think of their own houses. So you weren't that different, and it's something I'm used to. So I'm used to that challenge, but it was more challenging with you, I think, because it was such your baby, and you were the architect. Um, there was. You know, there was the appraisal that you guys had that came in with the price pretty high. And this appraisal is comparing these townhomes to townhomes that were seven miles away. Yeah, literally what she like she would to geographically what she's describing is on the south edge of town or on the north (laughs) edge of town. Yeah, so vastly different. That's what your appraisal. And and so we did have, you know, a lot of disagreement about why I didn't, between you and me, not between me, you and Alex, but between you and me about why I didn't agree with the appraisal price. Do you think, here's a, do you think if we, I had this discussion with another developer today, if we would have waited until three months before they were finished and then put them on the market, do you think we could have got higher prices because do you think we could have got closer to the appraisal because they were finally built? Or do you think it still didn't matter if you had to speculate? I keep going over this in my head. And I, and, mm. and then I talk, when, I, when I explained this to the other developer I was talking with today, I go, but you and I know that there's a business cycle. I think we're at the end of it or at least riding the top of the wave and it's going to crash and things aren't going to fall apart in the sense that you get you know, discount sales on stuff, but people are, people are going to lose jobs. Economy is going to just kind of crumble away a little bit. Does that, you don't want to be left holding the bag. Okay. So it was yeah. like, okay, we don't want to be left holding the bag. Let's go with the prices you said. And then they did sell. But do you think if we'd have did any different, would that have worked any differently? Well, three months before the sale would have been, before they were done would have been September. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we had sold them all. Well, we sold the majority of them, the, the three-bedroom units, May through September. Yeah. So that's not that much of a timing difference. Yeah. So I don't know how. You know, I don't know how that would have affected it much. And and September is a more difficult time in our market to sell than the spring. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to have those on there for the spring. So I would say to that question, just thinking through it waiting 
uh, I don't know if it would have had any effect. It's hard I to don't say. think so. It's hard I to don't say, right? Think much. Yeah. Yeah. We have one. So we have one unit left that's for sale, and the, uh, that's what I'm curious to see. Is once we finish that one, we have pictures of the other ones we can put on, and and they will they will look exactly like the other one that's going to sell. But will that pri- I think that price point is going to just going to come in higher. I think no matter what, because it's an end unit. There's uh, just interest and appreciation, but I got I just I don't know. I keep playing that out in my head. Like man, what if we'd have phased it differently? You know. But that you all, but you can't not finish them at the same time. I mean, even if just for us to get a certificate of occupancy. But I don't know. What well, are, I just okay, wonder if you so played if that. If we're thinking about ways to have made more money on this yeah. after having done it. Yeah. Okay. Here's what I would say: price them lower to begin with. Because, and, and because what happens, and we can talk about why, why you should price it cor- at correct market value versus higher than market value. And, and let's, well, let's talk about appraisals and why, why you want to price at the appraisal price. And I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. And I think then we can lead into this and what, what could have been done differently. Yeah. Do you want me to, what do you want me to so, say? Okay, so, <laughs> so, the, so, you had an appraisal done uh-huh. to get your construction loan. Correct. So this was someone who was hired by your bank and you paid for yep. <laughs> to, uh, to verify that uh, this was a good loan for the bank, essentially, mm-hmm. and what, what these could sell for and, and, and so forth. So, so what, what confused the issue of the price was that this appraisal came in pretty high and and that's when you guys wanted to price it at what this appraisal came in at. When I was saying before, no, it needs to be lower, mm-hmm. because so what what sells what sells the home and determines the price of it is the market value. Yeah. Okay. So that appraisal used comps seven miles away. It didn't account for the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So the and that's not market value. Market value is what someone will pay for it. So when people are looking for a home, they're going to look at what's around it immediately, not really seven miles away. So, and they want to compare it to other townhomes. And I I wanted to get you guys into that critical thinking about it when I took you to other townhomes, the ones that are like seven miles Mm -hmm. away, (laughs) to, to look at those before before they were built to to show you this is what a buyer is going to do yeah they're going to go to these other townhomes and and they're going to look and see what their choices are if they if they want a new townhome in longmont right Mm -hmm. and then and then the so so that's one reason why that appraisal it wasn't reflective of real market value because they were too far away okay and then the other thing that happened was that well i mean there was there was the one driveway way your neighbors okay yeah there, there were two boarded up meth homes <laughs> <laughs> okay first kids in the block that's what i like to say okay, we're was, the fur the first kids in the block gentrifying the neighborhood for sure so after lansonell bought this land after they bought this land uh and then they started building or they started doing the foundation this was when these two these two big signs and boards came up on these two townhomes just right next door yep. that says in three inch tall black letters methamphetamine and then you know contamination a whole bunch of fine print about that on these two homes okay so the appraisal didn't account for that either yeah okay so. and, and just to be clear where alex and i were coming from was 
We had seen developer buddy after developer buddy down in Denver and like specifically the Lakewood area. Whatever they threw up, they were getting top dollar for in the worst neighborhoods. But I, and then now in hindsight, I look at that and I go, yeah, but it was Denver. It's, we're not Denver, right? We're a town mm-hmm. of 100,000 people. Denver's the hot. If you, if you are anybody moving from a coast, um, even the upper Midwest, anywhere in from the United States and you go like, move to Colorado. Okay. You think Denver, you don't think Longmont. Maybe you think Boulder, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I think we were thinking, oh no, we can, we can do what they're doing down there up here. Like, why can't we do it? And it didn't work out. Well, you can, it just needs to be priced. Um, it just needs to be priced accordingly. And that's all. And so those, so those, the appraisal didn't figure in the, those methamphetamine homes that when people, the psychology of people buying is that they want to, in a lot of ways, make their decision easier by eliminating things. So a lot of times buyers are looking for a red flag mm-hmm. just to go, just have an excuse, just to go check. Nope. That one's off the list. Yep. Right. So that's, that's what they do. And a lot of people move toward things that are positive in their decisions, but, but boy, a lot of people just move away from the negative. They just, they just think I don't want to buy a problem. Yeah. And, and, and it's not a problem, but if it's perceived that way, red flag. Okay. We're done. We're done. And I did have problems with people getting out of their cars when, when there was a showing, there was a problem with people. I would be in my car waiting and they'd kind of drive by and go, oh, no, thanks. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It is a different neighborhood now. I, I, I do have to say that. Like you, you drive through there and you go, oh, wow, this, this is here. I mean, it's hard to imagine it without there I mean, yeah. unless you do that. But when you're the first kid on the block, just know that you're the first kid on the block. So, we, so, obvious, so to recap, you know, we, we priced ours higher. Um, and then we ended up having to lower it. Tell us about the challenge with that. What is why? Why is it so important to get homes priced in a certain way from the beginning? Because um, if it's if it's too high at first, then then why can't you just lower it later? Yeah. Well, if I may explain this using data from the National Association of Realtors, I mean you can really get a good picture of it. So, you know, overpricing a home for sale it can mean a decrease in interested buyers and an increase on days on the market. So follow me here. And I'll email this information to anyone who asks um, through my website. But let me explain the difference, the pricing versus property appeal and the risks of overpricing. So the data shows that if pricing a home at fair market value will enable you to reach 95% of the buyers searching for, with your home's criteria. Now, the data also shows if it is priced just 15% above fair market value, it will decrease your buyer pool to only 20% of the original pool of buyers. This means it's going to sit longer. Mm-hmm. People are very savvy in, this, in, in our market. There's, there's a lot of tools available to everyone. Okay, and then there's the factor of time. The time on the market can affect the number of showings per week. I mean, the data just shows that most showings happen during the first month, and after that, it drops off significantly. So here are the risks of overpricing, because this is an important topic, and I just wanted to tell you about it. Yeah. So the risks are that the home, home's going to take longer to sell. Um, an overpriced property is considered stale. I mean, if it's been on the market for a while, regardless if price reductions are implemented. I mean, regardless if, if you price it at a... Um, 
three, you know, 400 and you're like, well, we'll take 380. There's room for negotiations. Regardless of what you're thinking, it's still, it's still considered a stale listing and a stale listing listing indicates buyer beware. You know, that's mm-hmm. what goes what's on. Wrong like, with what's this wrong property? with this? Yeah. Why has it been on here so long? Okay. I mean, the next, next risk of overpricing is just missing initial selling activity because there's, there's always a big splash that it makes with the advertising coming out and everything on, on all these, with all these algorithms and, and websites, it's, you know, new listing. They always have these kind of banners and flags on these, these new listings. And that's when, that's when the most excitement is in the first weeks and the buyer interest is really the highest. Um, and then as it, you know, as it sits longer, it gets lower levels of brokerage exposure and lower levels of buyer exposure. And, and one main thing too, is that agents, they just will not show overpriced homes to buyers. Because I mean, they know they're wasting their time, right? Oh, Simple as that. they're absolutely wasting yeah. their time. Um, and then, you know, so the perception, of the home's not desirable. Um, and here's an interesting, just some interesting data. Okay. Between there's a, there's a study by the National Association of Realtors showing the average difference between asking price and selling price received received over time. Okay, so the first month the home's on the market, the average price that it sells for is 3% less than it was listed for. The second month on the market, the average price it sells for is 5.1% less than it was listed for. Mm. And the third month... The difference is 6.7% less. And the six or more months on the market, the difference between the list price and the actual sales price is 15.2%. Wow. So this proves, yeah, the longer that it's on the market, the less it's going to get. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, What other challenges beyond over, you know, putting something on the market that's overpricing the UC uh, for coming from a realtor? Other challenges? Oh, and from working with you guys, you know, we had plenty, um, such as the most recent one was when we had the buyers that were coming on really strong with issues in their unit that they were sort of disappointed with because they were, well, they were incredibly finicky about um, just, uh, you know, cleanliness, paint, just straight, straight lines, uh, wood being straight in their unit, things like that. And they were kind of starting to step on your toes regarding some issues on that concrete floor. But to get to what, what, what we learned about this and what the point was that, um, well, I was in the unit with you and they called and the buyer said she wanted to talk to you and you were right there. So I put her on speakerphone. This <laughs> right? was, and this was minutes before I was uh, doing touch up, touch up paint work um, because our painter didn't show again. We have subsequently fired this painter. And so I was in there for, two or three days straight getting everything touched up before we started closings next week to try to make sure our punch lists after our, and during our final walkthroughs were as minimal as possible. Like there's always going to be mistakes. These are handmade buildings, but you try to try to minimize that. Um, and so I got put on the speaker minutes before it was about to head to their unit and start tackling their, their 92 ticky tacky nonsense stuff. Like, they wanted stuff, um, they were complaining about outlets being slightly out of plumb. So I went around with a, with a little torpedo level and straightened them so they were perfectly plumb. It was stuff like that. So I was already taking even more time away from family, just 
taking a day off. And then I got put on the speakerphone and I was like, oh, you you don't even know that I'm just minutes away from trying to tackle all these things. Yeah, so huge mistake. I should not have put you on speakerphone with her to let her tell you what she thought was wrong. And yeah, just don't do that. I won't do that again. Um, that was explosive. <laughs> so um, anyways, I had to talk her about, talk with her about her issues for an hour after, after you know, you, your brief conversation and address them and come up with solutions. And then they closed on the unit and then there were still more issues. So Alex addressed those with them and he went in to talk to them prepared to initiate this clause he put in your contract regarding the builders initiating a buyback if warranty issues were not resolved. And I just can't stress enough, if you're ever thinking about doing a real estate development, even if it's just one house, a brand new house, how important that clause is to put in there of that for the from the point of closing as the builder if you and the buyer cannot come to an agreement on some kind of warranty issue that you have the ability to initiate a buyback and you can just you can take the property back within that year period you got to have some kind of um, power not power you just have to have some kind of chips some kind of cards uh, some kind of something to play your hand with otherwise you're just pinned against the wall so we learned that from another developer and it was brilliant because he had all kinds of, you build these three story townhomes and one of the first things, no matter what that's going to happen is the, it doesn't matter where you put the furnace because there's a stack effect that occurs, right? So if it's a, it's this tall, skinny little building, it's going to get really hot in the upper floor. It's going to get cold in the lower floor. The middle floor stays okay. And there's ways you can mitigate that with, you could, you can, you know, close and open vents or whatever. But this is, this is the problem that another builder had. And we, you know, we told him what to do and ended up resolving the issue. But he's like, I had to pull that clause out. And then they just kind of said, okay, we're good. Like, we don't want to, we don't want to lose our house. Yeah, it was very smart. I mean, it was very smart that you guys did that and how Alex executed talking to them about it. I think it was very effective and boy, it really needed, it, it was really great that you had that. It needed to be done. Yeah. So, uh, so those, those particular buyers were easily the most difficult. Um, very, 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 very picky. Um, what I wanted the deal to explode at the end. I wanted it to just go away. And I said, we will just put this back on the market. It's going to sell in a heartbeat. It's not going to be an issue. I just, I let, uh, my emotions definitely get the best of me there. And you saved the deal. Why, why was it important to save a deal like that? Well, to me, it's about just putting your money from that sale to work for you sooner rather than later. I, I think that you're better off having that money and then being able to turn it around into another purpose for your business that could make you even more money than terminating that and then selling the unit to another buyer. I mean, plus so many things can go wrong in real estate. You know, the buyer's loan, the next buyer's loan could fall through. Mm -hmm. The appraisers, they now have comparable properties in the other sold units. So it was questionable if you could have received a higher price because all that appraiser had to do now was look um, next door and next right. door to get prices, which weren't going to be higher than what you got. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and also your next buyer could have been even more problematic than the current one. It's just, it's hard to screen. And, and especially those buyers that were very problematic, they were lovely 
to begin with. Yep. They were no problem with Boy, the contracts. It turned, a corner. It, turned a, it was such a crazy corner that we turned when we went through the uh, uh, the walkthrough that was before the final walkthrough. I don't know how else to explain that. There's like two walkthroughs, right? You do a walkthrough before you're going to go to closing and then days before closing and then like the day of closing. You should have another one to see what you can resolve before that. And it was just like, it was like two new people. <laughs> it was radical. Um, yeah, so whatever. Uh, okay, let's, 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 let's move beyond the development. Because uh, we have, um, so those are all good lessons too. And I think it's, I think it's important for people to kind of hear an inside take on it. Um, we have, but we have listeners from all over, we have listeners from all over the world. Actually, I think we have over, uh, listeners from over 50 countries all over the United States. Uh, so where do you think is a good place to buy real estate? Yeah, there are certain areas in the U S that are great real estate investments. And I'm, I'm really focusing on, on Colorado and what I'm going to talk about. And in fact, there are three Colorado towns that are listed in uh, smart assets, top 10 boom towns in the United States, which is amazing. And these would be considered the best places to take out a mortgage. And these towns are Denver, Greeley, and our own Longmont. And Longmont was actually number one in the nation, amazingly. And well, can I tell you what made these towns and our own Longmont stand out so much? Sure. Okay. So the factors that uh, smart asset rated these on, and this is what you know would be good to look for. The main factors would be the population change. Is it increasing? The unemployment rate is it low? Has the unemployment rate gone down? And then is the GDP of that area going up? Is business growth increasing? Is housing growth increasing? And is the change in household income increasing? Those so, are all, yeah. Yeah, these are really important factors mm-hmm. to look for in in where to buy real estate. And then, you know, look at a list. Look at one of these lists online that that will actually just rate them for you and tell you, but this is how they're really figuring it out. So, um Longmont became number 1 uh on this list. Uh Denver's in the top 10. So, I mean, it's safe to say to expand on this to say that the Front Range um which is the area along the Front Range of the Rocky Mountains here in Colorado is a, one of the best places in the United States and in, in the top 10 to buy real estate. Yeah, it still is too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, like even if it's expensive, if you can get in, I think it's still a great, it's still a great uh, place to do it for sure. Um, well, what do you say to people that are waiting for the economy to slow down? You know, you hear this all the time. Well, I think we're at the top. I'm going to wait till it crashes. What do you tell people? I do hear that. Oh, I hear that so much. And well, what I, what I say is that the predictions for a coming recession are for a very weak recession. Very weak. Mm-hmm. There's no giant bubble. I keep telling people this. I mean, there's always, the, there's always the dollar, right? There's always the dollar. We have printed so much of it. But when you, even if you are a uh, Miesian, even if you are somebody who believes in the like, Chicago School of Economics or the Austrian School of Economics, basically the opposite of Keynesianism, if you, if you still look at it objectively, you go, okay, where is everybody else putting their money? Like, what else are they going to invest in? Maybe maybe they can, um, maybe, I guess they're going to go, you know, to the, the into the EU, but probably not. Like, the, the EU has been pretty soft for a long time. They're still looking at America and buying our bonds. You know, where else are you going to dump right. your money? It's pretty safe. Right. Right. And with with job growth, 
I mean, as high it is, as it is in the Denver area and along the Front Range, a national recession would be felt, I mean, much less here in the housing market than other areas in the country. So the prediction of a weak recession on the housing prices along the Front, front Range is that the prices will just level off in 2020. That's all. They don't just even predict. They don't predict it would even yeah. go down. And even during the last recession, I think uh, they what they moved about a point, like well, a percentage point. Is that well, what they moved last time? Well, in in Boulder, in our in Boulder, the city of Boulder, it only fell about three percent. Three percent. In Denver, yeah. it was about twenty percent. Mm-hmm. But it was short lived, and like, it like what, back. like a year? Well, probably probably from two thousand nine to two thousand twelve was when the. the reached the bottom but here's the problem here's the problem every time with with that you know so even if somebody said yeah i'm gonna wait for that are you gonna have a job no oh, i know you know are you gonna have a job um not a lot of jobs from 2009 to 2012 and you know we didn't start to take off we started our firm in 2009 we didn't start to take off until 2013 we just starved for four years and then when it did start to take off well then we finally had enough cash to be able to buy houses and we jumped in as soon as we could and thankfully we did and we both had giant returns on our two-year investment uh, fix and flip, you know, our first houses, Alex and I, even you, you know, you, you, uh, you, you fix up your, 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 your house. We sold at the same time, bought our new house and built it. Right. Um, but then, and then when you average it out over the whole, everything, right. When you take the whole average of everything, like, okay, let's say I did get in at a high point. You're going to get back at some point. You're going to get back. But this, if it's a long play. It's a long play. And, and just one more, one more note about even if you bought, um, and say, say it's, um, it levels out. Interest rates are predicted to go up. So if you put, mm, you know, the interest rate together with, um, it, with the the prices leveling off, it just means that if someone buys with a loan now, when when the interest rates are are low, you know, say they buy a four hundred thousand dollar house now, if the interest rates just rose one half point higher than today's rates, then that four hundred thousand dollar house, which may be the same price in one year. It would cost you $114 more per month for your home. So plus the cost of all the money you're going to lose by renting. And rents here are major expensive. Skyrocketing. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about you could, you could easily spend um, $20,000 $20, a year on rent or more. Easily. $25,000 even. So, so when you factor all those costs in, there is just a high cost of waiting to buy, even if prices are level. Totally. If you so, if you, once you walk somebody through that sort of analysis, talking about um, the interest rates and how they're projected to go up, plus how things are just going to flatten out, and then they finally go, okay, okay, you've convinced me. So how how do you then get how do you get somebody ready to buy? That's an interesting question. It's a combination of learning why they want to move and educating them about the market, then putting what they want in front of them to grab it. So first I meet with a potential client, ask them what they're looking for and why they're moving. I have a series of of several questions that I'll ask them conversationally that get me to the root of what they want and why they want it. Everybody has their own personal, you know, wants and the reasons why. I just, I listen really carefully and I ask the right questions. Do you take notes? How do you yeah, do, how do, you I do, do take notes. Yeah. And, and if it seems like I shouldn't take so many notes, then I take notes the second I get in my car. Okay. <laughs> and then, and then I deliver to them what they want in the form of, you know, finding the right properties for them. And I show them 
you know, I show them what they want and I show them in the right places that they're looking. I just try to deliver it to them as best as I, as I can. And hopefully it exists what they want. Some people, you know, they don't have enough money to get what they want, but so you try to educate them as to what they can get. But, you know, it's really getting someone ready to buy is really a question of just, just knowing and speaking to why they want to buy. Mm-hmm. You know, why is it? Everyone has a different reason. Yeah. So it's, so I have, I usually have a 45 minute or longer initial interview with my clients and they think they're probably going to be interviewing me, <laughs> but I really, I tell them about me and, and how I can help them in my business and everything. And then I ask them all those questions and I dig deep and try to find it deep in, in a way that's just wanting to be helpful and really get to know them and show that I really care about what they're trying to achieve yeah. in their life. I I often wonder that little nugget you had there was I you think that the clients think that they're going to interview you, right? And they do. They yeah. do. There's a certain level of it. But I I it's the same thing for us too. Any I think almost any kind of service based business like that you run. I don't know. If you're going in there it, it, like it's an equal it's a it's at least an equal interview process. Yeah. You need to understand their wants, their needs, their desires, their dreams. How can you facilitate? Then, then you got to think about how can I facilitate that? How can I formulate that? You, then you chameleon. I think you chameleon to a certain extent. Yeah. Yes. And right. You, and what you got to do. Right. Right. Because if, if they're if they're really talking about an investment, then you want to talk about numbers and investing. And if they're talking about they want to have a, you know a beautiful um, home and park and and school system, you know you're going to speak to that more. I mm-hmm. mean, just things like that. That's where you chameleon and really and really speak to exactly what they want. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell us about some of your harder lessons. Um, What have been your biggest mistakes in real estate and uh, what have you learned from them? Yeah. I had one recently where, you know what? I didn't do my interview process with the person. (laughs) Was it just because did you get too comfortable? Was it a comfortability thing where you're like, I'm on fire. I'm just feeling comfortable. This is, you know, I was that what is that kind of what it is? I feel like I every once in a while I'll do that oh, too. Oh, a little bit. Well, it was a couple of things. First, it was a couple that called me, and they, and you know, it seems like we were going to meet and get together and and start this process. And then, then they each I talked. Then they each told me that they weren't going to buy a house together anymore. And I kind of dismissed them as okay, well, maybe they just don't know if they're in a relationship or they don't know what they're doing in life and kind of dismissed them. And I didn't bother to meet with each of them separately. That's how much I dismissed them. And also we were going to go on vacation. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> see, see, she's slacking a little bit. I slacked because we were going on vacation. Yeah. And then I get an email over vacation that, you know, one of them wants to see a house. And so I, I show them, and I show them as a couple, surprisingly, the house. And, uh, and then... You know, I, I lost them as a client after showing them that because I never really found out, well, what what's going on with them? I never dug that deep. And then, then of course, I wasn't showing them the right, the right houses. So, uh, because I didn't know, I didn't know what they wanted. I didn't really know them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if anybody's listening to this and they, they're inspired to the, to the extent of, I want to start achieving wealth and freedom through real estate. I'm, I want to do, I want to at least take the leap just from even a home buyer standpoint, an investor standpoint. What 
what advice would you give to those people? Where should they start? How do they start? Obviously, contacting somebody like you, if you're if you're Link Colorado, maybe maybe they do contact you. But where do you? What's this? Can you give them the ABCs of here's how you here's how you start? Yeah, here's how you start is is definitely contacting an agent because what, you know what what I would do if if you're in Colorado and you contact me is I'm going to leapfrog you to a place where I'm going to lend you all of my expertise, all of my investment knowledge, all, everywhere that I've been there, done that, my knowledge of the, of the area, everything that is a culmination of my career, I'm going to put into you. I'm going to treat your money like it's my own mm-hmm. and your decisions as if they're as important as if they're my life decisions. How could, how could somebody... How could somebody test an agent or, you know, a realtor that they've got in touch with to know that they're going to be like that? You know, how, how do they find somebody? Somebody's listening uh-huh. to this in South Carolina. How do they find the Maryland Iron Command in South Carolina? How do they test that? How do they, how do, how do they, how do they make sure that they're going to do that thing for them? The, the, those things for them. Right. If, if you want your, your agent to treat your money and your dreams, like, like they're as important as, as your own, I think, I think what I bring to the table and what other agents in other areas can bring to the table is is that have they have they bought a house? Have do they have any investment properties? There's a number of agents I know that don't have any investment that properties. That is a, that is such a elementary question, but after you revealed it, you know, like I'm looking I'm thinking about what you just said and I'm like, "Oh, yeah, that's a no-brainer. You should ask the realtor." Because they ask me, I mean, as an architect mm-hmm. or a builder, they ask me all the time, right? Who have you, where have you, have you, have you built here? Have you designed here? Have you went through the permitting process? And there's ways that I tweak things if I haven't done it, right? If I haven't in a certain type of typology, mm-hmm. I, I, as a, that's where your, that's where the salesman comes in or saleswoman, yeah. right? But that's such a good, that's such a good way to sort of have them dip them toe, dip their toes into your world. And then they can, yeah. they can see where you're at with things for sure. Yeah, right. Because there, there is, there's a lot to having done it and having been through it, especially if you're going to be an investor. And it's amazing how many people don't. Um, and I guess what, what else you could look for is, are, is your agent actually following up with you? What is their communication like? Because the number one complaint about agents is that their communication is bad. So I tell my clients, you know what? I you know what? As a real estate agent, you, people ask me, "Are you getting calls all the time at night and on the weekends? Or you just have no life to your own because you're getting calls?" I said, "No, no way." You know why? Because I'm calling my clients during the day. Yeah, I'm every- calling them first. Nobody calls me. I mean, rarely people call me at night. Every or once on, in a while. Every once in a while, but but it's it's rare mm-hmm. that that happens because you know what? I've already talked to everybody. Yep during the day or during that week or however many times that it was appropriate that week that I needed to talk to And talk isn't to there something also about having the discipline to not, maybe to not answer the phone after 6 p.m., maybe to, unless it's an emergency, right? Uh-huh. Or to not answer the email after 6 p.m. and show that, no, I, I think people get, I don't know why this is with anybody, architects, builders, realtors, people in our sector where they think, um, interior designers, any any kind of thing like that. They think, oh, at, they're open all the time. For some reason, we're mm-hmm. not a nine to five business to people. 
right? So oh, I, there's something to the there's something to dis to disciplining yourself in the way you interact from the get go, and then even maybe at some point curtailing people in a polite way. And I've said this before: is like if I if I'll if I get an email on a Saturday, I will not respond back until Monday and say, "Hey, sorry I didn't sorry I didn't respond on Saturday, but uh, I I usually don't answer emails on weekends because I." you know, dedicate that time to family and blah, 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 in a very nice, polite, professional yeah. way. And they get the hint and then it's protocol from there. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, you're, you're the master at that. <laughs> I could take <laughs> lessons from you on that for sure. Yeah. And, and that, that is good to train people when to, when to call you or, or how to call you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Some other things I've done, uh, now this is me talking, but is, uh, like, do you ever work on weekends? Well, yeah, but you know, my rate's a thousand dollars an hour. Oh, I can wait till Monday. Right. Yeah. Or like maybe your commission goes up or something. I'm just throwing out ideas. Um, mm-hmm. well, very cool, Marilyn. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on Monday morning coffee with inside the firm. Um, if you liked what you heard today, and you'd like to have Marilyn Ackerman work as your agent on your behalf, or if you have any questions about Colorado real estate, you can search for homes and contact Marilyn Ackerman through her website at coloradorealestateforyou.com. That's coloradorealestateforyou.com. You can message her and follow her on Facebook under Marilyn Ackerman Real Estate, or you can call and text her directly at 720-409-7939. That's 720-409-7939. 7939. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lance. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, don't forget to leave us a five-star review on the iTunes app. Tip your barista, and we'll see you next week for more Monday morning coffee with Inside the Firm.